So we are coming to the end of this time together, this retreat, and we'd like to just speak about that process, the uh, process of concluding the retreat, and equally the process of continuing our lives and our practice. And I think the first thing to just acknowledge or recognize is that although our life is a continuous series of smaller or larger changes, it's important to mark the transition points where we move from one particular form to another. And that's really what we're doing at this point, having spent a period of time in stillness, silence, and primarily contemplating our inner world and experience. We'll move from this into the activities of life, the engagements of life. And the way we do that really bears some uh, care and respect, particularly for the sensitivity and the openness that we develop, that we cultivate through this process and practice. Sometimes I don't think we can really see or know, particularly if we're doing this the first time, just how sensitive we've become, just how open we are. And so to move gently, to move with sensitivity and mindfulness into the process of engaging, you'll have opportunity um, when we've concluded this closing talk to, to begin speaking and to see what that's like, to notice how even probably the very thought of beginning to speak stirs quite some energy, you may have noticed. So that's just the thought of it. The actuality will undoubtedly stir some more energy and both the delight of that form of contact and engagement and equally at times the anxiety and the confusion and the awkwardness of it. Whatever it is that's for, there for you in contemplating it or in the actuality, really just being in touch with what that's like and to be aware that moderation is a useful skill to apply in such situations. Don't feel somehow like you need to explain to everybody on the retreat everything that happened, a blow-by-blow account of the whole eight days, not to mention your X number of decades of life before here um, that you would also like them to know about. And I'm sure they would also like to know about, but may not be able to take in all in one go. So just notice what that's like for you. And of course then just enjoying the process of connecting, of speaking, of making that kind of contact with each other, but also respecting if we're feeling sensitive that maybe there's a certain point where that's enough. And we can say, that's okay, we don't have to do this all day. The process of retreat and the meditation, as we've mentioned, it's a little bit like fasting sometimes. We can see that we're kind of not feeding so much sensory experience into our consciousness. And just as after a fast, the, the smartest thing isn't to go down to a restaurant and order a, a sumptuous six-course meal to make up for those days of fasting, because that would make one sick, basically. So too, if we take, you know, if we go home and think, I'm going to catch up on all the pizza and videos and emails and movies that I haven't seen for the last 10 days, our body, heart and mind may not be able to digest it and we may end up feeling literally ill. So again, be sensitive, move gently, regard this next period of two or three days as a transition. Just as the first two or three days of the retreat we were transitioning in to this mode of being, 
likewise being sensitive as we transition on into the next situation. And with that being aware of, we have to let go of this. Like so many things in life, we can't hold on to this thing called the retreat. It isn't a something, of course, it's a bunch of conditions that have come together for a while and at a certain point, for various reasons, comes apart. That's what all things do. And seeing that though there may be immense appreciation for this situation, we also have to let it go. We have to let it go. We get the opportunity to practice what we've been doing here and learning about here. To let it go as it goes. And in that seeing that that doesn't mean we have to let go of that which has made it precious or that which has made it transformative for us. Because that's not just to do with the situation and the circumstance here, but with what we have brought to it and how we have engaged with it. To see the value of paying attention, of cultivating steadiness, spaciousness and interest and open-heartedness in our engagement with experience through the practice of meditation. And really having the intention to continue to do that in our lives. Because that's really where it makes the difference. That's where it transforms our life. So in continuing from here to see what can we carry with us, what can we bring into our life. Clearly this meditative practice, this process of dedicating periods of time to sitting still, to walking slowly, to really focusing in on the cultivation of the qualities of heart and mind that we can develop through the process of mindfulness, spaciousness, open-heartedness, interest. So there's a real value in making a period of time in your day on a regular basis or a couple of times a day if you can where you sit or do some walking meditation in a very formal and clear and intentional way. And to really find the space in your day for this is something that can be immensely supportive. Even if your day is full and pressured and has many demands upon your time, to really see what we value in life. If we live our life expressing that, then it will support it. And so with meditation practice, a regular daily practice is of immense value. How long we practice, how frequently and how much time we can give to that will be affected by our circumstances. It may be and. I know uh, parents with young children tell me it's very, very hard to find spare time. Likewise, other circumstances can produce that issue. And yet, I always find uh, helpful to refer to a couple of uh, quotes from Ajahn Chah in this context, a wonderful teacher who we've uh, mentioned a couple of times already. Once asked by one of his students, he said, uh, you know, Ajahn, which means teacher, I have so many commitments, so many demands. I have my family, my work, my social engagements, my charitable activities. You know, I have no time to practice, it seems to me. What should I do? And uh, Ajahn responded to him. He said, tell me in your busy life, do you have time to breathe? <laughs> it's like we don't question that. We're not too busy to breathe. And in another similar dialogue, when being asked, you know, how long should I practice for? I'm so busy, I don't have enough time to practice in my life. What should I do? His response was, well, if you have time to practice, you should sit for half an hour every day. So if you've been wondering. He's and he said, and if you don't have time to practice, you should sit for an hour every day. 
what's it saying about our life if we don't have time for that which is important? And the very idea that I don't have time, that means we need to sit down. We've got to stop. We've got to look at what's going on. So in that, if one can find a routine or a rhythm or have a place in one's house or a corner in one's room where one can just say, this is the place that I dedicate, make a physical space, that can really support that intention to come and regularly connect with one's meditative practice. And to do so really is to nourish this whole process that we've been undertaking in an ongoing way through this retreat, to carry it into our lives. And to see that that in itself also, just as we've talked about that the sitting meditation isn't the whole of the practice or the walking meditation isn't the whole of the practice, but that being mindful and attentive, cultivating sensitivity and interest in our daily activity is equally important. Just as here we've encouraged you to include all things, so too in your lives. If we can do that, it will really serve and benefit our well-being and our happiness and the, the reduction, the relinquishment and really the cessation of suffering. So using the opportunities that come to us to, to stop, to connect, to notice where there's a moment we can be present. How many places in our life we're caught in reactivity. Sometimes it's useful to notice them. The phone rings and we're either excited, it's going to be someone I want to talk to, we're interested by, or we're anxious, oh no, it's going to be bad news or more work. Or as one friend of mine says, the phone rings and her first thought is, what have I done wrong? <laughs> you know, I'm in trouble. Really interesting just to notice those moments and just take a moment to stop and breathe. Just The phone will still be ringing half a breath later. And then pick it up, rather than rushing to pick up the phone. When we're in a conversation with someone and it starts to get a little sticky, just to remember our body and feel our feet on the ground or our bottom on the seat so that we know we're here as the emotion starts to rise or the reaction starts to build. It's like, oh, I can be here. And I can remember to reconnect. Or when we're caught in a traffic jam and we could just get irritated. Why won't these people get out of my way? I'm just trying to go to work or to something that's important to me, and they're all in my way. And we notice ourselves somehow imagining that the problem is out there, and if we just get out of the way, things would be smooth and easy for me. Is that familiar to anyone? And if things would get out of my way? Well, there's a overpass in London where pretty reliably every working day there's a massive gridlock and people are stuck there for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, longer sometimes. And someone very uh, cheekily, and I think wisely also, has spray-painted on this overpass. All these people are sitting underneath it looking at it. And what it says is, you are not in a traffic jam. You are the traffic jam. <laughs> and something really liberating about that, to see nobody's doing it to you. We've put ourselves here. One way or another, we've chosen to put ourselves here in this life, in this circumstance, in the situation. We didn't choose how it turned out, but that's how it is. And then we can maybe be creative and say, oh, here's a moment to be mindful. I can watch my breath. I can feel my body. I certainly can't get all these cars out of my way, so there's no point trying to psychically move them by going, because <laughs> it really doesn't help, and it's actually quite miserable. And those moments of attending, of noticing where we get caught, where we react, seeing that we can just breathe out, 
and put it down. Put down the struggle with what's going on. That's the gift and the invitation of remembering to reconnect, remembering to be mindful, to be aware, to again open our heart to what's happening, where we are, and whoever that includes, whatever that includes. We have no shortage of opportunities for this in our lives. So not to feel that, oh, I'm going, I'm leaving the retreat, I won't be able to practice. You'll have more than enough opportunities. The important thing is remembering to take them in the spirit of practice, in that willingness to learn, in that willingness to receive and to open to what is going on, to see that we learn our lessons through whatever comes to us. This is how we grow and how we develop. And in that, we really need to nourish ourselves. We really need to support ourselves. In leaving the retreat, one of the things that we'll perhaps feel, and it's often expressed, is how important it's been to have the support of everyone here. How precious and how powerful that has been for us. And to understand that in our lives likewise, nobody can do this for us. We have to walk the path. We have to find our way. But that does not mean that we have to do it by ourselves or on our own and in isolation. And the, the tendency in our culture is to kind of feel like we, we're all supposed to be independent and somehow I can do it and I don't need any help and you know there's something wrong with me if I do. This very individualistic and sort of self-inflating way we're invited to engage or relate to ourselves and our activities. Yet the truth is we need support, we need nourishment, we need many different forms of, um, of engagement with other things that bring nourishment and support. And to see what really does that, part of what does that is having contact with other people who practice and who are interested and have the aspirations for, for loving kindness, for wisdom, for freedom, for peace in this world. And so really making an effort to seek out and spend time with others who do value practice. And there are sitting groups and there are um, online forums and there are places that we can gather in um, different centers, different communities that one can find and spend time with and it's so important that we do that even if there's just someone here who we have liked or just thought we might like you know take the risk leave them a note or say hey do you fancy a cup of tea would you like to exchange phone numbers or emails or do you have a web page or a facebook thing i guess is probably what people do these days i don't know you know would you like to twitter um <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that works um probably i should um to see that there are many, many opportunities for us to attend retreats, to go and listen to teachings, to participate in events that may be specifically within the tradition of insight meditation and vipassana and these, these teachings and practices that are so valuable and precious. Really to take those opportunities, make those opportunities for yourself. Maximize what you can receive. And to look on the web, there's an infinite amount of resources out there now of possibilities. You could, there are the website Dharma Seed, which I guess was mentioned in the manager's talk yesterday. There are the teachings that we've given are already probably up there, as well as many, many others that you can access, that you can listen to again and again, check back in with, reading books, 
and really also beyond the specific world of insight meditation. Important, as precious as that is, see what else touches and nourishes you. I find it really important to spend time in nature, just in the natural world, away from the busyness and the, the madding crowd, as I think, uh, Tom, was it Thomas Hardy? No, I can't remember who said that. Thomas Hardy? Away from the madding crowd, you know? And in that, just amongst natural environments. Engaging in um, creativity, movement, music, art, dance, uh, Tai Chi, Qigong, these sort of things, what nourishes our hearts? So important to have contact with them because that counterbalances the way in which we're easily depleted or and can feel overwhelmed by the, the weight of craziness, busyness and frantic, desperate need and fear that seems to be the condition. Neediness, greediness and fear that seems to be the condition of the world that so much we are in contact with. So that's really my, my strongest encouragement to you, to recognize what supports and, nourish you and nourishes you and to really bring that into your life. Formal practice, informal practice, and everything that is of value to you, that serves you. Really make that a priority. And don't believe the voice in your head or the voice coming from outside your head that says there's no room and no time and no space for that. Because there is. And you can find that space. So please continue to do so, which is what we've been doing here. Please continue to do so. The short version of the closing talk that I sometimes give is really just what we've been doing here. This is a good thing. Keep doing it. Everything else is just more of the same that I might say. So I really wish you all well in your practice, in your journeys, in your lives. And uh, thank you for your really wholehearted engagement with this, with this practice and in this, in this retreat. I would like to share one point that is important for me, especially at the end of a meditation retreat. And it's the fact that there is much more to spiritual practice than meditation. In my life, I've met really wonderful people with deep integrity, with remarkable freedom who had never been meditating, who wouldn't have a clue how you meditate. And also, I know a few people <laughs> who meditate quite a lot, and nothing much seems to change with them. I think ideally we should be aspiring to what Gandhi expressed when he said, my life is my message. Seems quite demanding to me, but we can move into that direction. You know, rather than telling the people around us, you know, maybe it would be good for you to meditate, <laughs> you know, to practice to a point where they ask, what do you do? You've changed so much. That would be something. It hasn't happened to me yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Might happen to you. 
So there are many areas of practice other than just meditation that I think are quite essential. One is ethical integrity and kindness and compassion, generosity and many others. I feel that our practice must translate into our ways of acting in life. Ways that are non-violent, ways that are non-harming, with sensitivity in our relationships, in our intimate relationships. Our speech is a great power in life. To use it mindfully, wisely, and with care. That the areas of gossip, of slander, of harsh speech, we can look at, we can really bring awareness into. We can work on honesty, on ever deeper levels. You know, we probably won't just lie, but there are many areas we, you know, things get a little longer, other things get a little shorter. I'm always curious to um, listen to myself or others. If you think it's good to do long retreats, pay attention to what do you tell your friends how long this retreat was? I find that interesting. Oh, I was on this 10-day retreat. Maybe. Here's it. It was seven and a half. <laughs> Just in case you couldn't. Here's a story that tells you why I think it's so important. A story I know I've read before, but many of you haven't been here. so. Shane. Shane invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful Shane's roommate was. She had long been suspicious of a relationship between Shane and his roommate, and this only made her more curious. So reading his mom's thoughts, Shane volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to Shane and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find the beautiful silver gravy ladle. You don't suppose she took it, do you? Shane said. Well, I doubt it, but I'll write her an email just to be sure. So Shane sat down and wrote, dear mother, I'm not saying you did take a gravy ladle from my house, and I'm not saying you didn't take a gravy ladle. But the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Now, later in the day, Shane receives an email from his mother, which reads, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you do not sleep with Carrie. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. <laughs> So, don't lie to your mother. <laughs> Ethical conduct is very important. <laughs> Both metta and compassion are wonderful practices in daily life. Use the metta phrases 
or use one metta phrase. Just maybe, may I be happy, or may you be happy. Simply that. If you remember, you know, tiny little metta islands in your day, it doesn't take much time to just say, may I be happy. And somehow that can help, like it opens the doorway to your place of metta that you have, you know, been cultivating and you have been contacting in the practice here. So sometimes to just use the phrases really changes our whole inner attitude, changes our outlook on a situation in just a moment. And do a lot of metta for yourself. And I think especially in difficult situations in daily life. We tend to think we should be better than we are and may start to send metta to a really difficult person. <coughs> Maybe more important and more effective in these moments to send metta to oneself, to yourself. That can be really supportive and healing. It's also dangerous sometimes if we send metta to a difficult person in a difficult context or situation that we do that hoping, you know, he or she is going to get better if we send the metta or get nicer or something. So in that situation, it's ourselves needing it. It's important what is, it's interesting what has been done in terms of research also around metta and, and uh, compassion. In uh, Switzerland, there have been there are scientists now who um, have been here on the scientist retreat and who start to um, explore uh, what metta does to the brain. And it's very interesting what they come up with. I recently came across this paper here, and it's just a confirmation of what we already know from a different side. This is a reading exercise in English for me. I hope I can do it. This is psychology professor Datcher Keltner, PhD at uh, UC Berkeley. At the seminar, he proposed that compassion is a master emotion, biologically rooted deep in our brains by the imperatives of evolution. That because human infants require such a prolonged period of caregiving to mature into adults, Homo sapiens evolved to become ultra-social and ultra-cooperative. The early communities of individuals who would communicate, collaborate, resolve conflicts without having to move into separate territories were the ones to pass on their genes, the sine qua non of evolution. The new lens of neuroscience is validating a new view of evolution, that the empathic caregiving that drove the development of the higher cortex of the human brain was shaped by the most potent of pressures we have evolved to adapt to, the need to care for the vulnerable. Dr. Keltner suggests that the new view is shaping a new paradigm shifting us from survival of the fittest to survival of the kindest. Compassion as a master emotion is the platform for many other pro-social emotions and behaviors. 
empathy, gratitude, goodwill, altruism, forgiveness, cooperation, social re responsibility, social well-being. A consistent focus on compassion in a meditation practice activates the left frontal lobe of the cortex. This left shift inclines us to approach people in life situations rather than avoid them. It also assigns a positive emotional weight to experience rather than a negative one. So kindness and compassion are key practices. It's not something like maybe just the icing on the cake. It's really, really important. Ethical conduct, love, compassion. The last quality I want to mention and recommend is generosity. And here I just read you another story to illustrate. A young lady was waiting for her flight in the boarding room of a big airport. As she would need to wait a few hours, she decided to buy a book to spend her time. She also bought a packet of cookies. She sat down in an armchair in the VIP room of the airport to rest and read in peace. Beside the armchair where the packet of cookies lay, a man sat in the next seat, opened his magazine and started reading. When she took out the first cookie, the man took one also. <laughs> she felt irritated but said nothing. She just thought, what a nerve. If I was in the mood, I would punch him for daring. <laughs> so for each cookie she took, the man took one too. This was infuriating her, but she didn't want to cause a scene. When only one cookie remained, she thought, oh, what's this abusive man to do now? <laughs> then the man, taking the last cookie, divided it into half, <laughs> giving her one half. That was too much. She was much too angry now. In a huff, she took her book, her things, and stormed out to the boarding gate. Eventually, when she sat down in her seat inside the plane, she looked into her purse to take out her eyeglasses. And to her surprise, <laughs> her packet of cookies was there, untouched, unopened. The man had divided his cookies with her ethical conduct, kindness, compassion, <laughs> and generosity. I think these are the best modes of being we possibly can live in. So, thank you for your practice. So I also uh, just want to express my appreciation for all you've brought to this retreat, your sincerity. I've very much appreciated the group meetings. You've been wonderful. I have to tell you the, the staff here is in a state of awe, possibly because they've just come 
this retreat on the came on the tail end of the family and the <laughs> and the teen retreat, which would make any retreat look like an oasis of calm and. Uh, um, but it's, it is true that our retreat manager has confessed that she really hasn't wondered whether she had a job. <laughs> so I really thank you, actually, for your um, attending so wholeheartedly, your, your willingness to bear with things. Um, we've talked uh, a lot about many things over these days and today and one thing I, I just want to raise is how much we've, we've given emphasis to wise intention during this retreat and how like the whole of the practice, your whole way of being here, your whole way of being in every moment really does hinge upon this sense of intention, intentionally being here intentionally being present, intentionally returning when we get lost. And this is such a, a key, key factor to take in our life because, you know, certainly in, you know, much of Buddhist teaching and much of reality, our own experience, intention is the forerunner of the kind of speech we engage in, the thoughts we entertain or let go of, how we what we choose, what we choose not to undertake, our acts, intention is really, really so, so influential, so shaping of the moment. And, you know, you've experienced that here. I mean, so many of you have been through so much over these days and many, many important shifts, many, many important understandings in a very short period of time. And it's so good to acknowledge that all of that kind of, any beneficial effect you might have experienced from this retreat has really been born of your own intentions, your own efforts, your own commitment, your own dedication. It's all born of that. There's absolutely nothing magical about IMS. There's nothing magical about silence or even nothing magical about sitting and walking all day. You know, with without intention, you know, we could sit and walk all day. It's nothing particularly special. And yet, you know, just spend, have more time to fantasize and, you know, more time to dwell and obsess. You know, <laughs> is this possible? But we actually kind of steer it in a different direction. We steer, because of our intention, steer our attention in a different direction. And, you know, in, the, in this tradition, you know, the, the kind of wise intentions that the Buddha speaks about are, are really very key to a very free and kind life, you know, because he speaks about the intentions of renunciation, of letting go, of kindness and compassion. Not a long list, quite a short list. Not hard to remember, hard to apply, uh, harder to apply. But that is the invitation of this practice, you know. I mean, nobody ever said the road to enlightenment was paved. You know, we are working against, swimming against the tide often. I mean, in my own life, and some of you have heard me say this before, you know, I, I really value intentionality, and, and not just the moment-to-moment -moment intentionality, but 
I'll often kind of adopt a kind of like bigger intention for a year at a time. And usually I find out it's after a year of, of kind of practicing with this intention, I have no interest in giving it up. You know, one year I renounced hurrying and after a year of not hurrying, I decided, you know, it was obvious this was a much saner way to live. <laughs> you know, so I didn't want to take up hurrying again. You know, it's kind of like, it's done. Not done hurry. Last year, I gave up waiting. That was very interesting, to renounce waiting. That's so fascinating. Because, you know, just look at how often we can get in that mind state where we're waiting. We're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for something to end. We're leaning forward when we're waiting. There's often a sense of impatience. And it's often feeding that the moment is really not enough. And I found that working with the intention to let go of waiting, what comes in its place is resting. Resting, you know, stand in the line at the bank, resting. You know, stand in the line in the supermarket, resting. You know, trains late, ah, resting. You know, planes late, resting. I've discovered there are so many opportunities in this life to actually rest rather than wait. Isn't that interesting? You know, and it's so, it, it's just a shift in the mind that comes about through intentionality. Through intentionality. Large and very small, moment to moment. But I find in my own practice that to take a kind of intentional theme to practice with over a longer period of time, it, it, it's very interesting, it's very enlivening, it, 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 it really cultivates that sense of, of engagement, of interest, of exploration. And usually, you know, it, it, it becomes very immediate. It becomes very immediate. The thing I just want to talk about is this balance of seclusion and relationship. You know, because, I mean, we are very relational beings, and it is what allows us to deepen, to flower, to engage, to connect, to cultivate and practice all the things that Fred has spoken about, of generosity, of kindness. Very, very important part of our life, and this practice is very relational. This path is very relational. But the other part, which is often not always so, uh, it's not so immediately obvious, the benefits of seclusion, until, you know, we get to those places in our lives where we feel really overwhelmed, you know, really overfull, too much. And then the thought arises, you know, I need to go on retreat. You know, I need some space. That's often the phrase we use a lot. I need some space, you know. And it's very important to, to listen to those, those voices because we shouldn't wait until we're in a crisis to find seclusion. You know, I don't think it's helpful to, to wait until we feel overwhelmed to really answer that voice that really acknowledges our, also our need as human beings for seclusion, for simplicity. As a saying by one, uh, one Monk Kaivedi says, in this, this mountain cave, my forest hermitage, everything I do is good. And we, we don't live, obviously, in a way that we're oriented towards mountain caves or for, you know, forest hermitages. 
But I think there is something about actually cultivating the secluded mind. Cultivating the secluded mind. Cultivating our, our cave of the moment. You know, I, in my own life, I don't feel like I, I go from, uh, you know, go from, you know, busyness to a cave, like being on a retreat. I, I feel like I go from the cave into life. But, that, that's, but it, it's about cultivating these moments of seclusion. And it's not hard, you know. It, it's like it's really what we do with our attention, you know. Like, like when I, 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 I am in the supermarket, uh, you know, what does seclusion mean in that moment? It means that I don't actually have to kind of gorge all my sense doors on every sensory impression, you know. Uh, you know, I, I actually kind of look, ah, what am I attending to here? How do I attend to it? How do I receive? How am I present? Cultivating some, some seclusion of the sense doors, cultivating these little moments of calm in the day. Little moments of calm, really being aware of how calmness, as we've spoken about on this retreat, is indeed a cultivation. It's a path, not just a byproduct of the practice. It's a cultivation. And, you know, in most moments, even in the most kind of busy, overfull moments of our life, you know, there's always things that are quite calm. They may not even be inner, you know, but my, generally speaking, you know, my earlobe is calm. And I always find something that's calm. I can always find something that's not agitated. And just to connect, ah, yes, remembering. And that's a kind of seclusion. It's that kind of, you know, we've talked so much in this retreat about returning. Returning. What are we returning to? That kind of secluded mind. It's, it's being aware of not cultivating distractedness, but cultivating calm cultivating simplicity, certainly not just on retreats, you know, because we cannot always just have this life that is waiting for the next retreat. You know, many times in our life we can think, well, I can't practice, I've got so much to do, there's so much I need to attend to. There's a saying from Patro Rinpoche, he says, by the time you've set yourself up with a comfortable place to stay, plenty of food, warm clothes, and a generous benefactor, you've completely cultivated the demon before even starting to cultivate the Dharma. So it's kind of like not, not having this sense also of waiting for the perfect moment to practice it. Noticing that every moment is actually the perfect moment to be mindful in, to be kind in, to be compassionate in, to be present in. There isn't a better one. And that is actually, you know, where our life is our practice, as much as our cushion is our practice, our life really becomes a, a kind of invitation, an invitation for us to actually transform how we are present. We cannot always transform the world we are in. But we can certainly transform how we are in that world, in that life. And, you know, this is a practice that has some very key elements, you know. It's not about being Buddhist. It's not about being anything. It's not about becoming something. It's about really being aligned with what we most deeply value, you know, most deeply value as human beings, our wakefulness, kindness, compassion. It's never that far away from us. 
So to, if we could end with just a very, uh, just a few minutes of silence and a dedication. And again, just taking a moment to calm, to settle. To relax, to breathe out, to find our ground once more in just this moment. Being aware of your own body, heart, mind, just now, just as it is. Being aware of all of those around you, the person who sits on either side of you, in front of you, behind you. Expanding just also to include all of those <coughs> in the building who've cared for us over these days. And extending a sense of appreciation, of warmth, of kindness to those near to you, to all those in the room, in the building, offering your heartfelt wishes for their well-being and happiness. Also being mindful of receiving the same heartfelt wishes from all those around you. <coughs> and dedicating our practice, our efforts, our intentions to the well-being, the happiness of all beings, those that we know and love, those that we struggle with, the countless beings in this world, in this life, we don't know. Dedicating our practice to the welfare, the happiness of all beings near and far. And whatever benefits may be born of our practice in kindness and compassion, may that contribute to the healing, the well-being of all beings. Whatever benefits are born of our practice in peace and care and understanding, may they contribute to the happiness, the healing, the peace of all beings. May all beings near and far, known and unknown, be safe and protect, protected. May all beings near and far, known and unknown, be peaceful. May all beings near and far, known and unknown, live with ease and with kindness.
you travel safely and be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.